John 10, beginning at verse 11. This is our Messiah speaking. He says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired man, since he is not the shepherd, doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he is a hired man and doesn't care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me. As the Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. But I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd. This is why the Father loves me. Because I am laying down my life so I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down. And I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. May Yahweh bless His Word to our hearts today. I ended last week by saying that Yeshua's death was not at the hands of His Father, but was at the hands of the devil. I want to clarify here that I'm not saying that Yeshua was an offering to the devil. That's not what I'm saying. His entire life was an offering to Yahweh, including His death. The father was pleased with his son being so brave and noble and willing to give up his life so that others could have life. What I am saying is that Yeshua's death, the betrayal and the mocking, the spitting, the pulling out of the beard, the crown of thorns, the whipping, the torture, the nailing to the cross, that was not accomplished by Yahweh. That was accomplished by wicked hands who ultimately were tools of the devil. They murdered the son of Yahweh. In Mark chapter 10, Yeshua explains to his disciples that greatness in the kingdom is not determined by exercising power over people or shoving people around with authority. He says that's how the heathens do things, but we're contrarywise. The greatest among you will be the one who serves. And if any of you want to be first, you've got to put yourself last. And then he says in Mark 10, 45, Do things like me, he says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is repeated in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, verse 28. The word ransom is from the Greek word lutron, and it means to loosen something by a redemption price. My mind, when I read the word ransom, immediately thinks about a child who is kidnapped and then held for ransom by the criminal. The ransom may be paid and the child is set free. Early Christians were familiar with this due to the practice of pirates taking over a ship and then selling the ongoers of the ship as slaves unless someone paid a redemption price or a ransom. Yeshua says in Mark 10, Matthew 20, that his life was given as a ransom for many. Who was the ransom paid to? Who held the many, that is us, captive? Do you pay a ransom to the parents of the kidnapped child or to the person who kidnapped the child? Acts 20 verse 28 says this, straight from the King James Version. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God which He hath purchased with His own blood. This verse usually comes up in discussions about the nature of Christ. 
There is a textual variation at the end of the verse. Some translations read, "...whom he hath purchased with the blood of his own Son." I've listed various translations that read that way. I do take that particular reading in the textual variant. I don't have really a problem, though, with the alternate reading in the sense that Yeshua is Yahweh's Son and thus His own blood in a manner of speaking, like we would speak about our children. But the part that I want you to think about today is not necessarily that Christological difference or debate. But I want you to think about this. Who did the Almighty God purchase the church, the people, from? The price that was paid was the blood of His own Son. But who was the price paid to? Did Yahweh purchase the church from Himself? Does that make sense? Here's another text on this from Galatians 1, 3-4. It reads, HCSB, Grace to you and peace from Yahweh the Father and our Master Yeshua the Messiah, who gave Himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our Mighty One and Father. So this is talking about the death of Christ. The Messiah gave Himself for our sins at the death of Christ. And it says this was done in order to rescue us. Rescue, there's a concept there of redemption, of ransom, purchase, buying something back. And the rescue here is said to be from this present evil Age. In the word rescue, we see the idea of pulling us away from something that is bad. Look at Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. And this is the verse that kind of ties all of the strings of the other verses together in a knot. This is a verse that I've read so many times. Hebrews is one of my favorite New Testament books. And I've read it so many times that I've never saw it until the past few years. Verses 14 and 15 of chapter 2, it says, Now since the children, that's us, have flesh and blood in common. We're all human, mankind. Yeshua also shared in these. He too is a human. He's part of mankind. So that through His death, He might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. We, the children, were held under death's power. But Yeshua, a man like us, destroyed the devil. How? Through his own death. So battle language is used because the devil is the one who held the power of death over mankind. Mankind had been held in a type of slavery through fear of death since the Garden of Eden back in Genesis chapter 3. Now, remember, I mentioned this in part one of the series, Adam and Eve were deceived in the Garden of Eden. Who deceived Adam and Eve? The serpent. Now, I realize they were drawn away by their own lust. As James says, every man's tempted when he's drawn away by his own lust and enticed, right? But a lot of times, even though we're drawn away by our own lust, there's something else in the mix. There's something else that's tempting us, even in this day and time. The narrative in Genesis 3 speaks of a serpent, but more correctly in Hebrew, the nachash. Nachash is a Hebrew word that has to do with hissing and divination, spellcasting and trickery. Twice in the book of Revelation, it mentions that old serpent called the devil and Satan. Revelation 12, 9, Revelation 20, verse 2. So we're talking about an enemy of Yahweh, and I believe the main enemy of Yahweh. In Genesis 3, the Nachash approaches Eve and Adam who was with her. So he approaches both of them. 
And he gets them to question what Yahweh had told them. Yahweh had told them something. The Nachash gets them to question what Yahweh had said. In doing so, mankind chose to listen to the voice of the serpent instead of the voice of Yahweh. And in doing so, the serpent gained a grip on Adam and Eve. How do I know that? Hebrews 2.14 and 15 says, The devil is the one who held the power of death. Through his crafty deception, he persuaded Adam and Eve to sin, and sin brought decay, and decay brought death. This explains how the devil was able to offer Yeshua all the kingdoms of the world in the temptation in Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 9. The devil took Yeshua to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to Yeshua, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Now, thankfully, our Messiah did not listen to the adversary. (laughs) He chose to remain true in his worship to Yahweh. As a matter of fact, if you slow down and read Matthew 4 very carefully, you'll see that the whole thing is an attempt by the devil to get Yeshua to make the devil his mighty one instead of Yahweh. But all three times that are recorded, Yeshua said no to the devil and said yes to Yahweh. And each time he would quote, because there's power in the Scriptures, he'd quote specific texts from Deuteronomy that dealt with what the devil was telling him to do. But we see here that the devil had some type of power to be able to make an offer like this to Yeshua. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll fall down and worship me. See, mankind was doomed to die and stay dead. And in some way, we were subject to the devil due to the sin of our first parents in the Garden of Eden. But Almighty Yahweh had a plan. Yahweh provided a deliverer, a chosen one, a second Adam. Romans 5 talks about, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about this second Adam, a new creation. This deliverer was similar to the first Adam in that he came about supernaturally, made in the image of the Almighty. Somebody said, well, all men are made in the image of the Almighty. Not like Adam was and not like Yeshua was. Adam was the perfect image, first man made from virgin soil that had never been tilled, never been worked, made from virgin soil. Yeshua was the new new creation, the new Adam, made from the womb of a virgin woman. In the image of Yahweh, like Adam, more so than like myself or those of us alive today or that have lived. Adam is actually called the son of Yahweh, the son of God. In Luke 3 verse 38, in the genealogy, it gets down to Adam. It says, Seth, who was the son of Adam. And then it says, Adam, who was the son of God. And we know that Yeshua is called the Son of God or the Son of Yahweh multiple times in Scripture. So once this deliverer was born in Bethlehem, the little town of Bethlehem, Ephratah, small little town, he grew into his ministry. Luke 2 said he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with both Yahweh and with man. And Satan was willing to relinquish his control over humanity if he could have this chosen deliverer in their place. It was a trade, so to speak. Yeshua's life was a ransom price. We were purchased by the blood of Yahweh's own Son. The devil tried to get Yeshua to worship Him, recorded in Matthew and Luke, but Yeshua did not yield. So the devil thought, well, if I could have control of this deliverer and kill him, 
I'll win the battle and have complete control over everything because the deliverer that has been sent will be non-existent. But what the devil didn't realize was the promise of the resurrection. Remember in John 10 where Yeshua says, No man takes my life from me. I have the right to lay it down and I have the right to take it back up again. What does he mean he has the right to take it back up again? What gives him the right or some Bibles say the authority or the power? How does he have the power to take his life back up again? Let me tell you how. He's making a reference to his righteous life. See, the grave was made for sinners. Remember before Adam and Eve sinned, they had full capacity and full right to the tree of life whereby they might live forever. Once sin came into the picture, death came into the picture. The grave was made for sinners. What was Yeshua not? A sinner. Hebrews 1.9 says, He has been exalted with the oil of joy above His fellow companions. And it says the reason why is because He loved righteousness and He hated lawlessness. That's not talking about one or two or three times. He always loved righteousness and He always hated lawlessness. It's hard for us to fathom. Hard for us to fathom. But Yeshua did it. He overcame. Death is a result of sin. The grave has power over sinners. We've all sinned. Yeshua never sinned, so the grave had no control over Him. He could be killed, yes, because He was a man. The children are flesh and blood. He shares in flesh and blood like us. He could be killed. But what death and the grave may do to us or does do to us could not do to a sinless man. And Yeshua knew that after His death, He would be resurrected. I want to make a point here, and I said this to somebody the other day. I can't remember who. That doesn't mean that it was a cakewalk what He did. That does not mean that when He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane and was about to go through all that torture, I believe He knew that He had the promise of a resurrection. It does not mean that what He went through was easy. But He knew that His soul would not be left in the grave. Hebrews 12 says, because of the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross and the shame and the spitting. His soul would not be left in the grave. The Holy One of Yahweh would not see corruption, Psalm 16, because He always loved righteousness and He always hated lawlessness. Now, this promise of the resurrection was veiled to, to the devil. It was veiled to Satan. It was veiled to the evil powers of, of this age, both Judahite and Greek. It was veiled to a lot of the people that wanted to put Yeshua to death. Satan took Yeshua, the chosen deliverer, as a ransom price for us. Yeshua was delivered up into wicked hands that crucified Him. It made the Father in heaven both sad and angry. At the same time, He looked at Yeshua sacrificing His life as a noble, heroic act of bravery and courage. The devil had Yeshua mocked, beat, flogged, slapped, spat upon, nails through His hands and feet, he did not just kill him quickly or painlessly. Why? Because he hated the Son of Yahweh. He despised him. So he tortured him to the very yanking out of the beard hairs. After all, this son was the chosen deliverer and Satan knew that. All the torture upon the Messiah, it's because the one behind it hated him. But the Messiah went through all of that for us. Because of what Adam and Eve did in the garden and because of you and I who patterned that sin of our first parents, we all deserve that torture. 
We are the ones who turn our back on Yahweh. You are the one who listens to Yahweh's command and you say yes, but then you forget later on and you say no with your life. Every single one of us makes promises to Yahweh that we do not keep. And we say good things that we don't really mean. We deserve to be held in the devil's power, the power of death. But the chosen deliverer, our Messiah, the anointed one, gave his life in place of ours to ransom us, to purchase us with his precious, undefiled blood. What is the blood? We talk about the blood of Yeshua. There's many scriptures that talk about the blood of Christ. 1 John 1, seven says, If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, us and Yahweh, and the blood of His Son, Yeshua, cleanses us from all sin. But what does that mean? What does that stand for? We know there's life in the blood. Leviticus says that. What does it stand for? I'll tell you what it stands for. The blood stands for His noble death and sacrifice. It doesn't mean that Yeshua, when He ascended into heaven, when He got up there, He kept some of His blood and started sprinkling it around the heavenly tabernacle. What it means is when He got up there, the Father got to say hello to Him. And I think, I like to think, gave Him a big hug and said, what you did was good, my son. I'm well pleased in you. You live righteously. You died sacrificially. And I raised you from the dead. You had to be raised from the dead. You had the right to take your life back up again because you had no sin. The blood stands for His noble death and sacrifice. The reason His blood and death is precious, catch this, is because of His law-keeping. That's why it's precious. Because of His law-keeping. All the law-keeping that Yeshua did is just as important as Him going to the cross. Just as important. If He died on the cross and He was a sinner, He could have still been a martyr like Peter or some of the other disciples that gave their lives for Christ, right? But He could not have been the ransom price. He could not have been the chosen deliverer. He would not have been raised from the dead to immortality. Do you know He's the first man that's ever happened to? There were some people that were raised from the dead, but they had to die again because they were raised to mortality to live a few more, li- a few more years here on this earth. Yeshua was raised to never die again. Deathlessness, immortality. It's beautiful. So Yeshua never turned His back on Yahweh. Every time He said yes to Yahweh, He kept His promise. He never broke a promise that He made. <laughs> And then he said, I'll take their place. I'll give my life as a ransom for many. If you give up, talking to the devil who had the power of death, if you give up Matthew and TJ and Sandy and Rocket and Phyllis and Tisha and Jerry, if you give them up, I'll take their place and I'll die. I'll let you have me. I'll be the ransom price. I'll take the beating. No greater love hath a man than this that he laid down his life for his friends. Now the rulers did not know the whole picture. The devil didn't know the whole picture. He didn't realize there was a promise of a resurrection. Yeshua comes busting out of the tomb on the third day in anti-type of the wave sheaf back in Leviticus 23. It's beautiful, Passover. Sabbath and wave sheep, beautiful depiction of the resurrection, the third day resurrection there. He's victorious over sin. He's victorious over death. He's victorious over the grave and the devil on the third day. He did not see corruption. His body did not decay. Remember, Lazarus had been dead for four days. His body was decaying. Yeshua actually was only in the grave for roughly about 34 to 36 hours. And it had to be that way because the promise was his body wouldn't decay. 
and there's a process if your body is dead for so long that you'll start to decay. That didn't happen to him. The grave had no right over him. He had the right to lay his life down, and he had the right to take it back up again. <laughs> Look at 1 Corinthians 2 here for a moment. We read here beginning in verse 6. This is Paul writing to the church at Corinth. However, we do speak a wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. On the contrary, we speak Yahweh's hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom Yahweh predestined before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom, for if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Master or the Lord of glory. Now the wisdom that Paul writes about here is called hidden, or it's called a mystery. Now, a mystery in the New Testament, from the Greek word mysterion, it does not mean something that is unattainable knowledge. It does not mean something that you can't figure out. A mystery in the book of 1 Corinthians and elsewhere in the New Testament means something that was veiled. It may have been talked about in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament, but it was veiled up until there was greater or more revelation given in the Newer Testament. That's what mystery means. I want you to notice here in this text, it says that this wisdom Yahweh predestined before the ages for our glory. That should make you think of Yeshua. 1 Peter 1.19 says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the earth. Revelation 13.8 says, The Lamb which was slain from the foundation of the world. And then it says, The rulers of this age, this present evil age, Galatians 1-4, through did not know about this wisdom. If the rulers would have known about the wisdom, they would not have crucified the Master of glory, showing you that the wisdom Yahweh's speaking about that's hidden and veiled in a mystery is talking about the Messiah. And every single thing that the Messiah came to do in His first coming, even though it was talked about in the Older Testament, all of it wasn't as plain as it was once it happened. Because prophecy is always plainest after it takes place. There's going to be a lot of things, I believe, based upon the first coming of the Messiah. When Yeshua comes back, there's going to be a lot of things that people thought would happen or how things were going to go and iron out and pan out that's going to be found to be false when He comes back. And we're going to realize, oh, that's what that scripture was talking about. I was wrong. I'm thinking of myself here. I can speculate. I can tell you. Prophecy is not my strong point. But I can tell you some things that I think about the second coming. But Matthew will not know for sure until it takes place. Just like nobody knew for sure until the first coming took place. They didn't expect the Messiah to be born and laid in a feeding trough in old little town of Bethlehem, Ephrathah. There's so many other big cities that the Messiah could be born in. They didn't expect that to happen. But the Savior of the world is born in the city of David. Some people might not like me saying that in the month of December. I don't know if he was born in the month of December. But I rejoice with the angels at his birth. I love the birth of Christ. I celebrate and rejoice the birth of Christ. I've got no problem with that. I rejoice with the angels. But he had a lowly birth. Shepherds were there. Shepherds were the low class. They're low on the totem pole, so to speak, in society. This is our king. First coming. Had the rulers of this age, wicked rulers, led by the enemy, knew about this predestined yet hidden wisdom. Had they have known it, had they have known that he had had the right to lay down his life and to take his life back up again, 
they would not have put Him to death. Because through death came the promise of resurrection. But because they didn't realize it, they murdered the Son of Yahweh. Look at what Paul writes in verse 9. Next verse, but as it is written. Written where? Hebrew Scripture. What I did not see and ear did not hear and what never entered the human mind, Yahweh prepared this for those who love Him. Prepared what? The Master of Glory. How many have ever heard that or read that preach that it was about heaven? I raised both of my hands because I heard it many times. <laughs> I did. Now, I'm not against the kingdom of heaven. I believe that is the final destination of all those who have died in Christ. And I look forward to that kingdom of heaven. So I'm not against that at all. But the immediate context here is about Yeshua and His resurrection. His death and resurrection. He is what Yahweh prepared for those who love Him. He is what eye had not seen or ear had not heard. His resurrection to immortality is what the rulers of this age did not realize. Had they realized that they would not have killed Him. And when Paul says, as it is written, this is debated amongst scholars and theologians, I think Paul was pulling from Isaiah 52, 15. Which if you remember, Brother TJ taught a lesson on this, and I've translated it properly here because it's startle, not sprinkle. Right, McCord? <laughs> McCord texted me after that service. He said, remember, it's startle. Not sprinkle. <laughs> but it's true. If you look at the text, it's actually startled. The, the, there's Bibles that say startle. Isaiah 52, 15. So he will startle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. This is the suffering servant being talked about. Look, for they will see what had not been told them. <laughs> and they will understand what they had not heard. 1 Corinthians 2.9, what eye did not see and what ear did not hear and what never entered the human mind, Yahweh prepared this for those who love Him. Speaking of our Messiah and His death and His resurrection. So the battle that the devil thought he had won when he murdered Yeshua was lost at Yeshua's resurrection. His plan backfired. Some of the early Christians after the age of the apostles some of the early Christians in the first few hundred years of Christianity, they would illustrate this concept as like if you went fishing and you put bait on the hook and the fish went after the bait, right? But it didn't realize the mouth of the fish didn't realize it was going to get hooked and you're going to reel it in. The early Christians used this as an illustration that Yeshua was the bait for Satan. Satan took the bait, but he didn't realize the hook was there and the hook was the resurrection. <laughs> If the rulers would have known, they would not have crucified Him. The devil relinquished control he had on mankind. Remember, Yeshua was a ransom. He relinquished that control that He gained in Genesis 3 so He could have the chosen deliverer. He killed the chosen deliverer, but the chosen deliverer came back to life. Never had happened before. Came back to everlasting life. The promise of the resurrection. This is why, brothers and sisters, if we have faith in the Messiah... And with faith is included faithfulness. The Greek word and the Hebrew word, emunah or pistis, can be translated either faith or faithful, faithfulness. If we have faith and faithfulness to the Messiah, when we die, the grave will not hold us. Now, we might not resurrect on the third day. We might. Who knows? Because when one of us dies, Yeshua might come back three days later. I don't know. But we have the promise of the resurrection. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, Just as Yahweh raised Yeshua from the dead, 
He will also raise us up, those who died in Christ, at the second coming, the final consummating coming of Christ. We inherit what He inherits when we make the decision to follow Him. But if we're not in Him, if we don't follow Him in faith and faithfulness, we don't have that promise of everlasting life. There will be a resurrection of the unjust as well. Yeshua talks about this in the Gospel of John. But the resurrection of the unjust won't be to immortality. It'll be to death, and death will be forever, everlasting. This model of the atonement that I've presented in the last two lessons, and now part three, what exactly happened on the cross? This model was believed by many early believers. You can read about this in the writings of what's called the pre-Nicene Christians meaning the Christians that lived before the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. They most, if not all, talked about Yeshua's death in the way that I'm talking about it today. I do not bring up these pre-Nicene Christians to say that they had everything right or to appeal to their authority like they can't be wrong. I bring them up simply to show that there is another way to view Yeshua's death instead of the wrath of Yahweh coming down on Him in the form of a penalty. Penal substitutionary atonement, that was pretty much popularized in the Protestant Reformation. It began by an archbishop in Roman Catholicism named Anselm in the medieval period to some extent, but it was popularized primarily by the reformers Luther and Calvin. What I'm saying is is that if we go back further than that to the pre-Nicene Christians, Penal substitutionary atonement, whereby the wrath of Yahweh comes down on Yeshua as a penalty in our place, was not taught. They taught more of what I'm saying in that Yeshua's life was a ransom paid to Satan. And it was a trick because the promise of the resurrection came about. So this is a very old view of the atonement. This model of the atonement is actually where the prolific Christian author C.S. Lewis pulls his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe from. Now, he wrote this book for children, but it's still a good book and a good movie as well. And he wrote this illustrative story to depict this particular model of the atonement called the Ransom plus the Christus Victor view. Christus Victor means Christ the Victorious. So C.S. Lewis believed this view. That's where he got the idea for his book. I do not agree with every every single thing in Lewis's symbolism and all the mythology, But if you go back and read the book again or for the first time or watch the movie, you'll see what I'm saying maybe a little bit more plainer. I think your eyes will be open to the reality that C.S. Lewis was trying to get across in an allegory that he wrote for children to help them understand what took place in the atonement. I watched this movie yesterday, actually, uh, just to put it fresh on my mind before I taught the sermon. And I remember the scene where Aslan, the big lion that represents Christ. Aslan is, is, a, is a word in another language that means lion. He represents Christ and he makes a deal with this white witch. And they're all cheering because Aslan comes up and you know he's strong and he could get out of this if he wanted to, but he gives himself up in place of little Edmund who was a traitor in the city of Narnia. And they're mocking him and they're tearing his hair out and they're beating him and they're tying him down. And then the white witch, she puts the knife through him. And C.S. Lewis is is trying to get us to to think about what took place at the death of, of Christ. I want to thank here at the end, I want to thank an Anabaptist minister by the name of David Berceau. 
what got me thinking about this roughly about three years ago and then studying about it since then before I taught was a lesson by Brother David where he titled it What the Early Christians Believed About the Atonement. That got me thinking on the subject. I had never heard what I'm talking to you about until about three years ago. But I had always had problems. Remember last week when I talked about human sacrifice? In the back of my mind, I always had a problem with Yeshua being a ritual sacrifice to Yahweh. I just didn't think that that sat well with the Torah. And in reality, that's not what happened. And this particular understanding of the atonement gave me peace um, about the doctrine. So several years ago, David Brousseau put out some lessons on the atonement. And that's what began to change my mind when I listened to him go through the scriptures and explain it. He does a very good job. And I want to give honor where honor is due. I recommend his series on this particular subject. Let me end this lesson by saying that if you or anyone else that's listening to me today or later on disagrees with what I presented, it's okay. I don't expect you to listen to something I say and just believe it. A good Berean receives the word with eagerness of mind and then goes back and examines the scriptures to see if these things be so, right? So it's taken me about three years to iron all this out in my mind. So I'm kind of giving you a head start. I've been doing the ironing, and I'm giving you the finished product, right? So it's okay, though, if you disagree and you understand Yeshua's death in a little bit different way, so long as you believe that He died for our sins. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. You believe that, you have salvation. Remember the illustration I gave? Even though you don't know how a plane gets from Atlanta to Washington State, it doesn't matter if you know or not. You get on the plane, it's going to get there, right? Yeshua's death is for you if you accept it, whether or not you understand it and explain the intricacies of it. But I think what I presented today and in the last two lessons is the best understanding of the atonement. I do think it's the best understanding, and I think you'll appreciate what took place and understand what took place more when you understand it this way, especially when you get into the book of Acts. TJ's teaching through it. When you get into the sermons that were preached in the book of Acts, the apostles never say in those sermons that Yahweh poured His wrath out on Yeshua when Yeshua died. They always say Yeshua was murdered, wicked hands killed Him, so forth and so on. Next week, I'm going to teach one more lesson in this series on the atonement. And I'm going to deal with some objections that are usually given to this view. And I'm going to specifically look at two verses in Isaiah 53, verse 6 and verse 10 of Isaiah 53, because that's really the catalyst for the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. I hope to shed some light on some things, and I hope to continue to stretch your spiritual muscles. I know sometimes it might feel like we're sitting in seminary class when I teach. At least that's what Rosalind says. (laughs) Rosie says, Dad, I feel like we're sitting in Bible college when you teach sometimes. I try not to make it so much like that, but sometimes I think it's good if we slow down and we love Yahweh not just with our heart, We love Him with our mind. Do you love Yahweh enough to think about Him, brothers and sisters? To love Him with your mind? It's both. It's not either or. I love Him with my heart too. I cry and raise my hands and shout. Sometimes I leap for joy. And I love Him with all my heart. But I also love Him with my mind. Hallelujah. I love you and I appreciate you. Till next week, may Yahweh bless you.